I think that technology ha- has led to the ending of some really cool things. Like, there's some cool things that I think that we miss because technology has brought different things. For example, does anybody miss the house phone? Think about it for a second. Like the ability to simply walk away from your phone. How novel is that? How crazy would it be that no one can get up with you if you just aren't near your phone? Uh, and you miss the feeling of having that long curly cord and going to hide yourself in your room to talk to your, your friends and stuff. It's gone. Technology killed it. It's done. Maybe you still have a house phone. It's a dinosaur. Like no one's going to call you on it and they're going to be like, okay, we'll just wait for that to end. That's one. Another one that is gone is the newspaper. Like I know there's still newspapers, but do you remember when the greatest like achievement in your life was to get your name in the newspaper. My mom cut it out. There's pictures of scrapbooks and like it's gone now. Like there's no newspaper. I mean, they have them, but you get your name in the newspaper. Guess what? Nobody cares. <laughs> Nobody cares. We all have our own personal newspaper called Facebook and we get to, we get to subscribe to whoever we want to. And so those things are gone. But I think maybe the biggest loss that we have due to technology is the loss of the art of letter writing writing like real letters to people. There was a time when you could compose a full-on biography of someone's life just by reading through their letters. I know that because I've read many of those biographies, you know, people from hundreds of years ago. And how do we know about them? Well, there's these hundreds of letters that they wrote to their friends. I, I, I miss the days when my wife and I were dating and we would write notes to each other and letters to each other and we'd store them in a box and they're still in a box somewhere. So Lord, help our children when they find them one day. (laughs) But it was special, right? Letters. Uh, We are talking today, we're starting a new teaching series through a book of the Bible where we're going to read through a personal letter, the book of 1 Timothy. And uh, we're going to see what happens when letters are put to good use. And my goal is to read almost every single word in the book of First Timothy over the next several weeks. And uh, so if you've got a Bible today, this is the week to open it up. I got my paper Bible with me. Uh, I cheat. I, I paste my scripture right into my iPad. But I brought you one of these up to show you this is another thing technology has robbed us of is the paper Bible. So if you've got a paper Bible, I encourage you to bring it next week, underline stuff, write stuff. But the digital Bibles are cool, fine totally good. If you need a good uh, paper Bible, we give them away every single week. So back at our coffee bar, we've got some Bibles. Anytime during the service, if you want to walk over there and get one, ask for a Bible. And if you need a Bible, you can keep it. Write your name in the front cover. It's your Bible. We want to give away Bibles to anybody who needs one. And so we're going to be in the book of First Timothy today. And uh, this is one of my favorite styles of teaching is just to open up God's word and just talk through it. There's a lot of styles of teaching and, uh, you know, they're all good. But this is a really good one. You just open it up. You just read through it. You're like, what's there? Let's take a little bit to talk about it. Let's keep reading. And we're going to read through the entire first chapter of 1 Timothy today. The Bible is made up of 66 books. And there are lots of different genres of writing in the Bible. You've got historical books like the book of Acts or the book of First uh, and Second Kings and First and Second Samuel. Like these are historical books. We've got poetic books like the book of uh, Psalms. We're actually going to be doing a series through some of the Psalms later this year. It's going to be fun. Um, but one of the most prominent styles, especially in the New Testament of the Bible, which is the section of the Bible about Jesus and the church, is the letter. The letter. Uh, Bible scholars call these epistles. It's the same thing as a letter. And the Apostle Paul is responsible for a lot of them. So uh, Paul wrote the book of 1 Timothy. He gets credit for 13 letters in the New Testament. And three of those are kind of special. 
I started out talking about personal letters. Uh, these three letters in particular, First and Second Timothy and the book of Titus specifically, are sometimes called the pastoral epistles. And you can hear the word pastor in the word pastoral epistles because they were written to pastors of some local congregations. And Paul was a mentor writing to them and explaining how church goes. And so, you know, as I look through... Uh, the Bible. I think one of the characters I relate to the most as a pastor, and uh, and for a long time, I'm, I'm still a young guy compared to some of you, um, but for a long time, I was a really young pastor, and I really related to this guy, Timothy, because he, he really relied on looking up to mentors, and this is, this is what this is. This is what this is, and so we're going to jump into 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Buckle in. We're doing it. Here it goes. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior, and of Jesus Christ, our hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This is called the salutation. It's the beginning of how these ancient letters started. You would always start with the author and then the intended audience. But before we get too far, we've got to meet this guy, Timothy, who the book is written to. Uh, Timothy uh, we first meet him in the book of Acts. And so if you've got a Bible and want to flip over to Acts chapter 16, I won't have it on the screen. It's just something to look at. It was the first time we get to meet Timothy. Paul was on one of his traveling missionary journeys, uh, similar to what Casey has been doing, going to different places, talking about the gospel. And he rolls up into this town and he meets this young guy named Timothy. Now, Timothy was being raised by his mother and his grandmother, who were both Christians, and also his father, who from what we can tell wasn't a believer. He was also a Greek. Uh, he li- they lived in a, a very Greek area, and so from his father's side of the family, he doesn't get this Jewish or Christian influence, and so he's kind of in a, an, a, a, you know, a mixed home, an eclectic home in a good way. I think that really helped Timothy out later in life. Timothy, uh, as a believer himself, hears Paul preach and goes, dude, I want to be like that guy, and just decides to go follow Paul. And Timothy becomes a traveling companion of Paul, and they travel. Actually, in two of Paul's large missionary journeys, Timothy was a traveling companion. And so we're talking hundreds of miles of travel and dozens of cities and what thousands of people they met. And over that time, Paul starts to think of Timothy like a son. Several times in his writings to Timothy, he calls him a son and refers to himself as a spiritual father. And so eventually, Timothy gets to this place where Paul says, I want to send you out as a missionary in your own right. I want you to go be a church planter. I want you to go be a pastor. I want you to go lead the way that you've seen me lead. And so that's where we find Timothy at the time of of the writing of this book. And that's why in Christian circles today, maybe you've heard this, or maybe this will be new to you. It's kind of a neat little little, uh, nickname. When someone comes to faith in a local church, and then from that local church, they're sent out as a missionary or a minister in some way, you will often call that person a Timothy. That's kind of cool. And so like it could be said that from my home church, I was a Timothy from my home church. And maybe some of you are Timothys from your home church. Hopefully you are sent out to do God's work at wherever you are. And so that's pretty neat. His name still survives as kind of that nickname. And so that's a snapshot of who Timothy is. So Paul sends Timothy out and his first stop is the city of Ephesus. Now, you may have seen the New Testament book of the Bible called Ephesians. That was written to the church that was in Ephesus. And guess who was one of the pastors in Ephesus? Timothy. So he's one of the leaders there. And that's where we find, uh, that's where we find this letter. Uh, a couple more things before we keep reading in the book. Because this is really a, a, a background week to kind of get us really set up for the rest of the book. Um, I want to acknowledge something that I think is important to acknowledge when we read the Bible. The book of Timothy 
was written to Timothy in the church of Ephesus, okay? I am not Timothy. You are not Timothy, even though your name might be Tim. I don't know. We are not the church at Ephesus. And so you see these letters and you're like, okay, this was written to a specific people for a specific purpose. What's that got to do with me? Like, how am I supposed to relate to this? And so there are two principles I want to teach us as kind of tools to reading the Bible as we get into 1 Timothy today uh, to help us understand what do we do with these words that weren't written to me, they weren't written to you directly, so what are they for? So here's the first principle. The first principle is this. Context is everything, okay? Anytime we read the Bible, we need to understand it was written into a context. You can't just go through the Bible and cherry-pick verses that you like and embroider them on something and frame them in your bathroom and be like, that's what this means. It might mean something similar to what you think, but it always means what it means in the context, and so it's important. We understand context from, you know, media and stuff. And when stuff gets twisted and distorted and because something's taken out of context, it doesn't mean what it was intended to mean. So one reason why I always, when we teach through the Bible, I always want to give the background of where we're coming from is because it's important to know where we're coming from. First one, context is everything, okay? Second one, this is simple. Look for timeless truth. Look for timeless truth. I had a mentor tell me this once 25 years ago, and it has stuck with me ever since. What does that mean? Well, let me take you to a context, okay? There are two types of truth in this scenario. There's what I would call a cultural truth, maybe a temporary truth or a cultural truth. It means this is true in a moment. For example, it's a rainy day, it's muddy, my son Silas comes to the front door, he's got muddy shoes on, and so I say to my son Silas, I say, Silas, take your shoes off before you come into the house. We don't want to track mud through the house, right? You've all done that at some point. That's a context, that is a cultural truth. I have told Silas, in this instance, take his shoes off. Now, then I have another child. Her name is Savannah. She lives in a different culture, let's say, for this scenario. She's living in the culture of people who are not wearing shoes. She gets to the front door. She's got muddy feet. Now, she heard me tell her brother, take your shoes off. But what does that mean to her? Does she take her shoes off? No, she's not wearing shoes. Does she go to the store and buy shoes and put them on and then come to the house and take them off? The cultural context of what I told Silas doesn't directly apply to her. So we need to look for something deeper. What is the message that's being shared there? Well, I mean, you guys are smart. You're figuring this out, but, you know, humor me. The message I'm trying to share is the goal is to not get mud on the carpet in the living room. That's the goal. The timeless truth is let's keep the floor clean. So there's an application for my daughter that's different. She's not going to take her shoes off because she can't, but she might go to the water hose and rinse her feet off or do, I don't know, walk on her hands to the bathroom. Like, I don't know, whatever she's got to do. So that's the point, right? So when we look through books like 1 Timothy, it's important for us to recognize the cultural context, the cultural truth, if you will. But, and then look, what is the timeless truth that we as modern day readers of this can grab? So, all right, we're going to jump right into some serious cultural truth here in verse 3. Because there's no transition, zero transition. Paul has something he wants to say, and he gets right to it. All right, here we go, verse 3. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer, or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. So he immediately jumps into this, this thing. We've done salutation, boom. What is he talking about? There's a cultural context happening here. The problem is, and if you go back and look at it, it's on the screen too, you can just leave that up there. There's some people teaching false things. He calls them false doctrine. This is a big deal. Doctrine is a fancy word that means teachings. 
And so it's like, what do you believe? And how do we act? And that's your, that's your doctrine. And so in this setting, there are people that are teaching untrue things, false things. And they're leading people away from Jesus by these teachings. Paul refers to them as myths and endless genealogies. What is he talking about? You want to know a little Bible scholar secret? We don't know. We have no idea what he's talking about specifically. Myths and endless genealogies. Uh, now, there's a lot of speculation. There's some pretty good ex- reasons. People have some good ideas of what he was talking about. But I don't think that's the point of what he's saying. There's something going on there. And the main point is this. Timothy knows exactly what he's talking about. Yeah. Yeah, these myths and endless genealogies that people are going on. on. And he says this thing, uh, that such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work. We have a goal here. We have a timeless truth. The goal is to advance God's work. And there are people in your church there in Ephesus, Timothy, who are totally throwing a wrench into that. We've got to put a stop to it. So whatever it was these guys were teaching, it was dangerous to the mission of the church. People were getting tied up in side conversations and side debates And they were missing the point of their mission as a church. Why do we exist? Which is to tell people about God's grace and forgiveness so that people can put their faith in Jesus. And we're getting off track. That's the cultural thing that was happening in, in Ephesus. And the truth is we see examples of this kind of stuff all the time in the modern church. We do. I see it myself most often about every four years in November. When suddenly every Christian decides that, not every Christian, I'm a cynic, you guys know that. When many Christians think my most important thing is to be a politician right now. My most important thing is to talk about politics. Because, good gracious, what's God going to do if a Republican or a Democrat, whichever one, the team I'm not on, if they get into the White House, oh man, it's all going to fall down. And we get into these side debates, and there are church families who, like, when the preacher preaches in November, it's like, on the platform, the same thing that the politicians are preaching on. And you know what I think Paul would say? I, was, I think he would go, you know what, guys? God does not care if there is a Democrat or a Republican in the White House because he is still king, and it is his kingdom. And guess what? Some of our politics do influence religious freedoms and things like that. So sure, we can have a stance. That's fine. But guess what? In the history of the church, it has never stopped the growing of the kingdom. Uh, There have literally been politicians cutting off Christians' heads, and that's when the church grows. Okay, because can we relax in November? We actually have a pretty chill group, and I love it. Okay, so that's not us. But that's an example of the types of things that we do modern times that are similar to what Paul's talking about. We see this all the time. There are uh, church splits for generations. There have been church splits, divisions, denominations, and why do they happen? Oh, because we got to argue over which version of the Bible is more perfect. We got to argue over what kind of clothes are we going to wear or not wear, or what's the style of worship going to be. I went to a church once. Uh, I was there for, for years, and, and before I got there, this was decades before I got there, but the church actually split over where they were going to put a, a water fountain in the building. And so literally some guys installed a water fountain and some people came stuck in in the middle of the night and they moved that water fountain. They replumbed, they were plumbers for Jesus. They moved the water fountain and then they took their ball and went home, started a church down the road. I think Paul would be like, what? The, the what? <laughs> What's, you know, all right, you get it, right? That's what's going on. What is Paul's teaching to us here? He's like, there's no, there's no place for that kind of unhealthy focus on non-essential things. People are in spiritual battle and we've got to go side to side with them and fight in this battle with spiritual battle. And what he's telling Timothy, which uh, this for us would, I guess, be me, would be our elders. I see George. I see James was up here earlier. Brandon is William in here. 
elders, pastors, he's saying to the leaders of the church, he says, if that happens, it needs to stop. You, leaders of the church have this very important role to step in like shepherds. And a shepherd does a couple of things. One thing he does is he guides a flock to safe pastures and to get them water. The other thing he does is he stands in the way when there's danger. There's a wolf trying to get in. We run the wolf off, right? And so I love our leadership at our church. I think that, that our guys are great. And, and, and that is what he is doing with Timothy here. But it's real easy for leaders to get on a high horse and to become real dictatorial. Is that the right word? And just kind of fuss and yell and be like the sheriff in town with a big old, you know, six shooter. And it's my way or the highway. I've, I've been part of churches like that too. And it's not, it's not fun for anybody. And it's not biblical. Paul says in verse 5, the goal of this command is love. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. How do we navigate truth, guys? How do we navigate our doctrine and our teachings? That's a loaded question. I don't have time for that today. Uh, We'll keep working on it as we keep going through 1 Timothy. But one way is that it needs to happen from a place of love. And I love this little three-part, I mean, this could totally be a three-part sermon that it could stand alone by itself. He says that this love comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. Let's look at those three things real quick. What's a pure heart? Pure heart is about your, your motives. It's my heart. My heart is pure. Like, I've got good intentions. I'm not just going to gain power by being right. My goal is not to just make other people wrong. My goal is to have a good heart, a pure heart, where my motives in talking about doctrine or talking about what we believe or approaching someone about their faith, it's, it's a pure heart. The second thing is a good conscience. Uh, literally, in, in the original language here, these two things are, are almost the same idea. I tried to look them up and be like, what's the main difference? But your conscience and a pure heart are very similar things. But when we think about our conscience, I always think about Jiminy Cricket from Pinocchio. Have they let him out of the vault yet, the Disney vault? I don't know if younger kids get to see Pinocchio, but we need to, we need to bring that back. Someone start a petition. Um, but... Your conscience is about your mindset. It's about like, am I okay with this? Am I, do I have a, do I have a clear, uh, do I have any guilt from this? Or do I feel okay about this? And sometimes there's that little voice in your head, the little Jiminy Cricket. He's the cricket that's Pinocchio's conscience because he's a wooden boy. And, uh, you know, there's that conscience that says, you know, this is a bad idea. You're kind of being a jerk right now. Uh, you should stop. Like, so we have to have a good conscience. And the last one is the most important. Sincere faith. Sincere faith is about how I'm trusting God in this. So we've got a big opinion, we've got a doctrine we want to teach, we've got a, a, a thought about you know, where we should put the water fountain. And the question is, how am I trusting God in this? Or is this just about me? Right? And so these are some good guidelines. I love what he's just pretty clear with it. Pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. And in a setting like that, where our leaders are leading from that standpoint and everyone else is trying to hit that goal of love, the church thrives. It just does. The attitude is contagious. And the people who want to come in and destroy a church family, they have no voice. I love the culture that we have here because there's been a few times where someone has come in and wanted to you know, say a thing or do a thing. And I love hearing you guys be like, yeah, we don't do that here. Like, we're not, sorry. We're just not doing that. <laughs> That's not what we're about. We're about loving people in the name of Jesus and helping people find God in that journey. And we're not here to argue about a bunch of stuff. And so I love that that's the teaching that Paul gives Timothy there. Um, he says, the goal of this command is love. And then we pick up in verse six, because not everybody's getting that. 
verse 6. Some have departed from these. What have they departed from? They've, they've departed from the, you know, clean heart, pure heart, clean conscience, sincere faith. They've departed from that. And they've turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are. <laughs> this is so funny. They do not know what they're talking about. You ever sat under a teacher who didn't know what they're talking about? Oh, that's frustrating. Or what they so confidently affirm. This is an important background piece too. Most early Christians, so when we read the New Testament, most early Christians were Jews. Um, we get the impression that most of the early church was like a pagan culture that converted to Christianity, and that's what happened over the next couple hundreds and thousands of years. But the earliest Christians were all Jews, and as such, they were raised with Jewish values, and they read the Jewish scriptures, and they had something called the law, which was very important to their life. And a, a, a Christian at this time, they wouldn't say, you know, we're no longer Jewish any more than you say, well, I'm a Christian, I'm no longer American. I mean, it's, they're, no, they're still Jewish people. They've just accepted the Jewish Messiah. It wasn't until later that you would think of it as a full-on conversion to a different faith. I think that was actually something that happened with the, the, uh, the, the Roman government that kind of began to do that. But the original Christians are like, hey, this is part of Judaism. It is just an extension of that. We have accepted the Messiah. But there's a problem with that because once you become a Jew and you have to make a shift, in, once you become a Christian, you have to make a shift in your mind. The question is, okay, before I knew Jesus, the Jewish law was how I understood salvation. But now that I know Jesus, salvation comes from Jesus. And so the question is, what do I do with the Jewish law? What do I do with that? Because it's really important to me. It guides my calendar. It guides how I treat people. It guides the clothes I wear, the haircuts I have. These are all part of Jewish law. The food that I eat. And so a lot of the conversations Paul has in these letters is addressing that very honest question. Are we still Jews or are we not still Jews? And a lot of the answer is, yeah, both. You're definitely still Jews, but your salvation comes from Jesus. And so these people in Timothy's church in Ephesus, they were also promoting some of these Jewish principles and they don't know what they're talking about. Pick up at verse eight. Paul knows what he's talking about. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees, okay? He was the guy who understood the law before he became a Christian. So he kind of steps in like, uh, actually, verse eight. He says, we know that the law is good. If there's any question about the law, Jewish law, it's good. We know that it's good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, ungodly and sinful, the unholy, the irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers or for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, that conforms to the gospel concerning to the glory of the blessed God, which he has entrusted us. Paul understands the law, and he's like, listen, it's, it's good, but if you're misusing it, there's a purpose for it. If you're misusing the law, that's not good. How do I unpack all that? I, I've got two suggestions. The first thing is, take some time with that passage this week and dive into it. There's a lot of individual things in there. But I think a bigger thing that Paul's teaching is like, we need to understand what the purpose of God's word is. What is the purpose of God? Is it just like, you know, a suggestion? Or is it God's spoken word that should guide us and lead us? And so I was reading that in some commentaries this week, and I found this one commentator that made a really good illustration of how we can see God's word. He says it can be viewed in three ways, all three ways, not like choose one, but all three of these ways are ways we can view God's words. The first one he said, he said that God's word can be seen as a door, a door to keep 
people from going places where they shouldn't go. A gate, a fence, something. A door. Sometimes God's word says, that's not best for you. That's not safe. Stay away from that. A door. Another way that we can view God's word is as a mirror. A mirror that can help us reflect who we are in God and how I can maybe grow closer to being like who God is. And so we can see ourselves. A mirror. So a door, a mirror. And the third way is a compass. A compass does what? Guides us. Points us in the right direction. A door, a mirror, and a compass. And when we can see God's word in that light and we're reading it, you read it in the context that it's written in. You're looking for timeless truths, but you're also like, okay, what, what are the things that God seems to be telling me to avoid, to stay clear from? That's the door. What are the things that God is showing me in my own life that I need to improve? That's the mirror. And most importantly, the compass. How can this point me to Jesus? So that's a little tidbit to help us as we understand some of these sections that might be more confusing. The teachers that Timothy was dealing with in Ephesus, they weren't using it as a door. They weren't using it as a mirror. They weren't using it as a compass. They were using it as a platform to boost their own agenda, to get power, to get a following, to shut things down that they didn't like. And when we use God's word in that way, it is dangerous and it is wrong. I think the timeless truth for us here, and maybe the timeless truth for this whole chapter, if you wanted to kind of put a sentence on it, is this. That everything we teach and do needs to be pointing people to Jesus. Everything we teach and do needs to be pointing people to Jesus. There's guys over in Timothy's church that are just not pointing people to Jesus. They're pointing people to themselves. They're causing all these troubles and controversies. What do we as a church, guys, locally, here in Wilmington, what can we do through what we support with our money, through what we support with our time, through what we talk about, the conversations that we have, the places that we do. Is it pointing people to Jesus? Because if it's not, it's a side issue. And it's not what we exist for. It's easy to get distracted by other things. Uh, some of the things that we want to talk about are very important. And we should talk about them. It's important to talk about politics and where to put the water fountain. Like, you got to know. someone A plumber needs to put the pipe somewhere. you got to talk about these things. But it's also important to note that some things aren't worth fighting over or dividing over. And either way, it's possible to have these conversations in love. And that's our goal. Uh, back to the letter. Uh, Paul's pretty frustrated with what's going on in Ephesus, if you're not picking that up. But I love that he hasn't forgotten his roots and his background. If you know Paul's background, this is really going to really jump out of you. If you don't know Paul's background, the author of this book, you'll get enough of it out of here. This starts at verse 12. Verse 12 says, So I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man, I was shown mercy, because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul's coming from a place of knowing what it's like to A, be out of line with where God wants you to be, He's, he's been off the rails before. He also knows, because of his history as a faithful Jewish person, he knows what it's like to be faithful and, and legalistic about it. Like overly concerned with every, all the details and trying to constantly push people away from God because you're just not good enough. He's been on both sides of the pendulum. 
And on either side of the pendulum, it's comforting to hear that Paul learned this truth. He said, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me. Poured out on him, like along with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. It's like God dumped his love on Paul's head. And I was looking for a picture of that as a story, and I got it last night. Last night we were at the Sharks baseball game. I don't know how many of us, 30, 40 of us were out at the Sharks baseball game from the church. It was so cool. Wilmington Sharks. And, uh, you know, like most baseball games, it's like 95% boring. Okay, there's nothing's happening. That's good baseball. Like if it's like zero score, it went really well. But if you're not like a baseball fan, you're like, when do they tackle each other? Does that happen? Um, but I love baseball. We're watching it. And so it gets down. Last inning is tied to four to four. Four to four last inning. They're going to extra innings. There's a rule in that league where when you've got extra innings, uh, you come into you, you come in with with two players on the bases. So your first batter already has two guys on base. If you hate baseball, I'm sorry. This is going to keep going for a second. Okay. And so there's two players on the base, and which makes it easier to score in extra innings. That's the goal. Well, we get through the first uh, extra inning and no score. Second extra inning, and the bad guys, the other team, they hit in two runs. Now the Wilmington Sharks are losing four to six. Our guys get up. We have one last at bat or the game is over. Two outs. We still got our guys on base. Dude steps up to the plate. Home run. Walk-off homer. Scores three runs in the last second of the game. And everybody's losing their mind. And so everybody comes out of the dugout. They're jumping up and down. The bad guys walk away because they're sad. The good guys are jumping up and down and cheering. And then there's this moment where the dude who runs around the bases... You know what happens. He gets in the middle of the huddle and some hot shot grabs the Gatorade jug and just pours it on his head. That's celebration, guys, when you get wet with Gatorade. That means you did something good. Paul says that when he comes to know the grace of God, God's love was poured out on him along with faith. And that's what happens when people come into a Christian community with their brokenness and with their baggage and with their background and they walk in and that pouring out of God happens when you guys give them a call and shoot them a text and see how they're doing. When you ask them over for dinner, when you go to lunch with them after church or get coffee with them later in the week. When you offer to take care of their kids because you see that they've got a busy schedule and they need a date night. When we begin to pour out God's love, those people begin to see the change that happens. And stuff happens in your own life. People see that you've changed. Differences are being made in your life. Why? Because God's love is poured onto you. And I love that God puts us in the position. We say at our church that we want to be God-chasing, grace-shaped love agents. And that love agents part is about pouring God's love out into the world around us. He picks up in verse 15. 15, he says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forevermore. Amen. That's the changed life. When people get the point that our goal is to point people to Jesus. We don't get stuck in the side stuff. We get focused on the main thing. We don't major in the minors and make small, inconsequential things our main objective. Life change happens, and people that used to know you as a jerk at work will be like, something's different about you. And you're like, oh yeah, I found Jesus. And people see that your marriage is different than it used to be, and you realize it's because you've started to point your marriage at Jesus, and you have less anxiety than you used to have because you've learned, you know what? I've got to learn to trust God with my 
stress and my worries. I've got to trust. Things change when God's love gets poured onto us. And that's probably the lesson today. And I wish I could just be like, all right, we're done. Drop the mic, pray, get out of here. But Paul's not done with chapter one yet. And so we're going to finish chapter one today. And it's kind of a sobering reminder. Uh, Let's just read what he wraps up with, verse 18 through 20. He says, Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you. People were saying, Timothy's going to be a great leader one day, and it was happening. He says, I want you to recall them that you might fight the battle well. This isn't easy. Leadership isn't easy. Living the changed life isn't easy. I want you to fight the battle well. He says, hold on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected. And so have suffered shipwreck with regard to their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. As a church leader, one of the most sobering realities I've had, I, I've been doing ministry for, uh, for over 20 years, and I've had the blessing of being in the lives of hundreds and hundreds of people all over the place and see true life change. But there are a handful that I look back on, and either they told me directly or I just learned through the grapevine that at some point they just said, you know, this faith just isn't for me. It's not for me. Or they decide, you know what, I'd, I'd rather live in a sinful lifestyle. I'd rather do these other things. I, I don't know that I really care. <laughs> I don't really care. And it's hard because you pour into people. And, and I believe with all my heart that the way of Jesus is the best way for our lives. And, but inevitably, not everyone's going to agree. And there's going to be some people that say no. For Timothy, two of these guys were this Hymenaeus and Alexander guy. Uh, maybe you've experienced that in a number of ways. Parents, if you have adult children who just aren't walking the path that you hoped that they would walk, maybe some of your young kids are, are, are on that trail right now. Maybe you have a person, a spouse, a loved one, boyfriend, girlfriend, that you had high hopes for their faith, or, and it's just not going that way for them. What do we do? We've poured the bucket. <laughs> We've tried well, we don't stop loving them. We don't stop praying for them. We don't give up on them. These two dudes for Timothy, Paul says, I, I, you know what? I'm just going to let them learn the lesson the hard way. And sometimes that's, the, that's a hard line to take, but that's sometimes the best thing for some people. So Paul chose for the, these guys show up in 2 Timothy too. They don't get any better. That's a spoiler. Um, what do we do? I, I think the lesson at the end of chapter one and probably the best place we can wrap up today is this. I think what Paul is telling Timothy is this. I mean, you can see it right in the scripture. He says, Timothy, you can only be responsible and only control your faith. There are other people that you want better for, and you can pray for them, and you can love them, and you can pour out God's love all day. But you've got to be respectful. He says, I want you to fight the battle well. I want you to hold on to faith and a good conscience. Guys, whichever end of that spectrum you're on today, this is great advice. We have got to fight the fight. Have you ever felt like life was a battle? It's because it is. Everything in our life is undergirded by spiritual reality. And so the fight you're having with your spouse, yeah, it might be over, you know, who left the toilet seat up or the toothpaste lid all. Like that might be like what caused it. But there's a spiritual undercurrent that's pushing you away from each other. The stuff that's happening in work, the stuff that's happening in the world. Yeah, there's reasons we can explain in the physical realm, but there's a spiritual undercurrent to all of it. And Paul tells Timothy, fight the fight. Continue the fight. Don't give up on the fight. Keep your faith in your conscience. 
I want to encourage us, guys, keep whatever faith you have. And no matter what we teach or do, make sure it's pointing people to Jesus. That wraps up chapter one. That's where we end today. And we're going to jump into chapter two next week. I want to encourage you to be reading it some this week. Dive into it with some discussion with other people that you might be in community with. And, and I look forward to getting into more of this as we go. Let me just pray for us as we go.